Well, I told my wife before we started last week, I said, I'm going to warn you that the first two mid, uh, midweeks of 2023 are pretty brutal. They're pretty rough. Uh, Revelation 9, like if somebody came to you like, I just need a Bible verse, I just need a chapter, I'm feeling, feeling down, I'm feeling uh, disheartened, you don't send them to Revelation 9, okay? There are other parts of God's Word to send them to. Uh, Revelation 9 has good news in it. We will see some of that good news tonight, but uh, it is, it's a tough chapter because of the imagery. It's dark imagery, right? Uh, Satan and war and demons and the fires of hell. And so we started it last week and we'll finish it tonight. Uh, if you'll remember, just so we can uh, recall how we got here, in Revelation 8, the trumpets are sounded and it's a response to the prayers of God's people uh, rising up to him. And the first four trumpets, as they are sounded, impact all of creation. And while the people that are on the earth are not harmed, uh, we know that when creation is impacted, the people feel the effects of it, right? So uh, throughout history, in the time in between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, you're going to see creation reacting to the judgments of God. Those judgments will be limited, but there is going to be agricultural fallout, economic fallout, and we, we saw that, you know, from this, when, when we as Christians are observing the world and we see on the news that, you know, this thing's happening over here and there's this volcano erupting over here and over here they're having a summon about global warming and they're fighting with each other and we got, you know, senators trying to punch each other at midnight over here, right? We got all this stuff going on. We don't look at that and go, man, there's just a lot happening in the world and I'm not really sure and what's the point of it all? No, we look at it and go, God is judging the nations, God's judgments are active in the nations. He's doing something, right? He is at work. We don't always understand what he's doing, but we know he's at work. We know what he's doing is righteous. We know what he's doing is wise because he's the one that is doing it. And it's going to be this way until Jesus comes back. There's not going to be a day where his judgments are not active in the nations until the Lord returns. And so the first four trumpets demonstrated that to us. And then there was this eerie scene at the end of Revelation 8 with an eagle flying overhead, pronouncing doom upon those who dwell on the earth, which we know from our study that those who dwell on the earth, that doesn't mean Christians, right? That's referring to non-Christians. And so in that verse it says, Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So three woes, three trumpets to come. We saw the first of the three trumpets blown, the first of the woes last week. Uh, Satan released demon locusts onto the earth. Again, this is not the place you send people when they're disheartened, right? Um, they couldn't harm the people of God who are sealed on their foreheads, but they will torment unbelievers to the point that they would seek out death. And tonight we see things escalate. The demonic activity in the world plays itself out not just in individual uh, lives, but in the lives of communities and in the lives of nations. And we will work through the passage and then uh, three teaching points for us to pull from it. So, Revelation 9, verse 13. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. 
The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound." The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or walk which cannot see or hear or walk nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Let's pray. Father, we need your help tonight to understand this. Uh, Lord, uh, this book has perplexed the church uh, for years and Christians are split on how to interpret it and we we know that Lord Um, and yet we come to it tonight wanting to learn wanting to learn and and wanting to get truth from your word that we can apply to our lives immediately before we even go to bed tonight so I pray that you would do that God that uh, that you would bring the truth to our hearts and that you would uh, apply it to our hearts Lord and that you would bring the transformation our hearts are open to you we pray this in Jesus name amen Well, we start tonight just by walking down these verses and trying to make some sense of what we are seeing here, and then we'll we'll get to the teaching points after that. But in verse 13, the sixth angel blows his trumpet, and a voice from the golden altar that is before God tells the sixth angel to release the four angels who are bound at the Euphrates. So the altar that the voice is coming from is the same altar from chapter 8, verse 3. If you remember there, it said, And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. So the commands that are coming here regarding the sixth trumpet are still very much connected to the prayers of God's people back at the beginning of chapter 8. The four angels bound at the Euphrates have been prepared for this moment. Down to the year, to the month, to the day, down to the very hour. All of this is happening in God's plan, on God's timetable. They're released to kill a third of mankind. And we see there that things have certainly escalated from the first four trumpets, right? What do we just say with the first four? They're going to harm the earth, right? But the judgments are not going to fall on the people, not going to harm the people. The people feel the consequences, but they will not be directly harmed. Here, that has changed, creation is not just impacted it's not just the earth burning up it's not just a third of the sea becoming like blood not just rivers and springs being poisoned it's not just the heavens going dark and failing to give light the first eagle flew cried out his woes satan's forces are tormenting people but not killing them as chapter 9 starts no now the sixth trumpet is blown and the second woe is upon the earth and we have got people human beings dying under God's judgment. And those who don't die by the events of the sixth trumpet are still rejecting God in verses 20 and 21, and they will face death as they face Him in judgment. 
Then we get to verses 16 through 19, and John sees this hellish army of twice 10,000 times 10,000. That's 200 million. I did the math a couple times on a calculator just to make sure that I was right and that the people in my Bible commentaries were right because I'm so bad at math that I, I, I just did not have any confidence in myself. So I'm going to get up there and say 200 million, and everybody's going to erupt and be like, that's not what it is. So, no, that's 200 million, okay? And ultimately, the math doesn't matter. It really doesn't. This phrase that you see here of twice 10,000 times 10,000 is just supposed to make you feel overwhelmed. Just like, oh, that's just so many I can't even begin to count it, right? If, if 200 million soldiers, 200 million horsemen stood before you, you couldn't count them. You would just go, that's a lot. That, that's a whole lot. That's very intimidating and very scary. And that's a legion right there, right? This is all a vision, John is grasping for language to put to what he is seeing, and the Holy Spirit is inspiring, and he is giving it to him, but this is a vision. He's telling us what he's seeing, but it's not to be taken literally. It is just supposed to be getting across the reality of spiritual things to us. And so here, we're supposed to just think of a multitude that we cannot count, a giant army, And the horses are the scary thing about this army. It's not the riders here, it's the horses. The horses are the ones that have the breastplate that are the color of fire and sapphire and sulfur. The Greek word that translates to fire can also just translate to red. So imagine that kind of like red, fiery look, okay? The sapphire is probably referring to a bluish-gray tint that smoke produces, and the sulfur would be yellow. These are the colors of war right? These are the colors of war in the ancient world. The red of fire, the yellow of sulfur, and the blue-gray of smoke. And so the breastplates of the horses are reflecting the battlefield. They're reflecting the horrors of a fiery, smoky, smoldering, burning battlefield. The riders are spewing fire and smoke and sulfur out of their mouths, and so the breastplates are also reflecting the violent elements that are coming from the mouths of this army. They have lion heads, they have serpent heads on their tails. Just kind of, in your head, just try to imagine that look for a second, all right? That's pretty, pretty terrifying. With their heads, like a lion, they roar and they spit and they they rip apart and they kill. With their tails, they trap and they wound. And in this way, they reflect their king. They reflect the destroyer, right? Whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, whose name in the Greek is Apollyon, the one that we met last week in the first half of chapter 9. He is a lion that, that seeks to rip people apart. In 1 Peter 5.8, Peter writes, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, talking about Satan, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so this army reflect the image of their king. In Genesis 3.1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? From the very beginning, he's there to trap Eve, to to wound Adam, right? To drag them away from their relationship with God. And that's reflected in the serpent's tail, or the serpent's head on the the tail of the the rider. The, The dragon that we will meet in Revelation 12, 
who works with the beast and the false prophet to war against God and the church and deceive the nations. The army reflects that dragon. Chapter 12, verse 3, we're going to read, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. So what are we seeing here? Well, I think that the imagery, obviously, is supposed to make us think of war. Right? Not a specific war, but war in general. I think God is showing us that until Jesus returns... There's going to be war all over the earth. And these wars are going to demonstrate to the human beings on the earth just how bad sin is. This is what it looks like when depravity reaches its boiling point and it spills over into violence. I don't think we're talking about the war to end all wars here. We're going to get to that war in Revelation 16. I don't think this is Armageddon yet. The seventh trumpet's going to sound. That's going to be the end. Instead, this is war that is all over the earth until Jesus comes back. That's why the four angels come out of the Euphrates, right? There's four of them. In Revelation, four often represents the four points of the compass which sum up the whole globe. So for example, in Revelation 7.1, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. And so the idea is that these, these angels are coming up out of the Euphrates and they're going to head off to the four corners, right? They're going to go north, they're going to go south, they're going to go east and west. I know I didn't just point north and south, but they're going to go north, south, east, and west. It's going to be global. War everywhere. The 200 million riders are meant to communicate the same thing. How many are going to be at war? You can't even count it. There's so many at war in the world, you can't even count it. Just, what are you saying? The whole world's at war until Jesus comes back? Yes. Yes, the conflict's not going to stop. When one ends, another begins. They're going to overlap. There's going to be multiple happening at the same time. It's just going to be war in the world until Jesus returns. And the whole world is buckling under the weight of the bloodshed that it brings about. If you don't believe me that war is truly universal, just consider this. Historian Quincy Wright says, Before, between 1480 and 1941, Britain engaged in 78 wars. France were in 71 wars. I think it, they, they fought either against each other or on the same side in like half of them, right? Spain had been in 64, Russia in 61, Austria in 52, Germany in 23, the United States in 13, you're like, oh, that's good, that's good, it's not too bad. We, we didn't exist for about half of that time, all right? So let's not give ourselves too much credit. China, 11, Japan, 9, and we know the war has not stopped. The U.S. has been in multiple wars since 1941. Many of you have served in them. We know that right now the world is captivated by the terrible war that continues to rage in the Ukraine. There's other wars that don't even get time on TV that have been going on. Some of them civil wars that have been raging on for years and years and years and the Western media didn't even bother with it. It's like, ah, nobody cares about that. John says a third of humanity perishes in these wars. Again, the number is not meant to be literal. It's symbolic. It's just, it's, it's just God saying to us, a lot of people on the earth are going to die from war. In fact, we could say that war is one of the, if not the most single, um, most devastating and destructive sources of death that mankind has ever known until Jesus returns. 
And so the sixth trumpet is to be a final warning. When the seventh trumpet sounds in chapter 11, it's over. That's the end. The book's not over. We've got more cycles to go to show us the end from different perspectives. But this cycle will come to an end. With the seventh trumpet, final judgment comes. Jesus returns. It's too late to repent. So the war in the sixth trumpet should be a ringing alarm in history that causes us to stop. I'm going to have to start taking this thing off. Every sermon, it's going off for, it's ever since the new year. I don't know what's happening. But I saw it happen to John Piper too. It's not just me. Um, he, it said, it told John Piper, you're getting too excited. That's what his Apple Watch told him. And he was like, I'm preaching. You know, it was right in the middle of a sermon. It was great. But, but listen, these wars are meant to be an alarm, right? That is ringing, much like the alarm on an Apple Watch, right? Just ringing, saying, hey, wake up. Stop your sinning. Do you see what is going on in the world? This is horror. This is terrible, and this is all going to be judged by God in the end, and you don't want to be in a conflict like this with God in the end. So repent now. God is using the bloody conflicts of the earth to say to humanity, this is who you are if I take my hand away. If I remove my hand from you, this is what will become of you. You will destroy one another. John Calvin agreed. He said wars are one of God's great judgments on the earth. William Shakespeare said that war is a son of hell. The old preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones proclaimed, and he was an Englishman, so he had a particular interest in this. He proclaimed that God allowed two world wars in the 20th century to show man two things. One, that he is an animal when he is in his sin. And two, to show him the horrors that he is capable of when left to his own devices. So when we look at the Holocaust or we look at Stalin executing a million Russians, we say this is God letting us see just how nasty we are. This is God letting us see just how depraved we are. The portrait of death and darkness that we see in these wars, this is what sin brings about. Now, with all that said, listen, here's the reality. Some beautiful stories emerge from war. Because God is so good in his grace that he brings about redemption and what the devil means for death. And so while Satan might be behind the evil that results in a lot of this violence, God brings beauty from it, right? There, there are stories even in the Ukrainian and the Russian war that, that make you smile a little bit. I remember one where there was a woman who was a Ukrainian who walked up to a Russian soldier and handed a bag of seeds to him and said, these are so, after you die fighting against us, the grass will grow where you stand, where, where, where you pass away. And while I'm not saying that uh, I'm rooting for the Ukrainians to, to kill a bunch of Russians as a Christian, I just am praying for peace. I did have to say, man, you've got to smile at the bravery of that woman to walk up in that minute and to say that, right? We could sit here and we could go through war books and we could read from World War II to Vietnam to the Civil War to the Revolutionary War to the French Revolution. We can find these heroic moments and we can say there's beauty in that. There's men and women that have served our country and have done nothing wrong in doing the job that they swore to do for us. But while there is beauty in it, and while they have honored us greatly in serving in that way, those men and women will tell you more than anyone just how horrible war is. And maybe that's why John Calvin also said, war is pleasant to those who never tried it. So how will the people who dwell in the earth respond to the warning? Will they see Russia invading the Ukraine and go, man, I better repent of my sin? I reject the sin that creates this conflict. 
I recognize that the very sin that's causing what's happening over there dwells in my heart. So I need to repent and put my faith in Jesus. No. According to verses 20 through 21, they'll just continue rejecting the Lord. It says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. They just kept rejecting God, right? They continue on in their sin. So three teaching points, and that leads us to our first one. If you're taking notes, the sixth trumpet shows us the depravity of humanity. It shows us the depravity of humanity. When we say that human beings are depraved, what we mean is that sin has robbed us of the ability to offer anything to God that can merit our salvation. Because of the sin that Adam handed down to me, I am born cut off from God, an enemy of God, unable to convert myself in my own strength because my will and my desires are corrupted. So I'm always operating from this place of spiritual corruption and death unless God intervenes. Unless He changes my desires, I'm always just going to keep choosing sin. It's just going to keep being my desire. But by God's grace, unbelievers still obey traffic laws, right? Still pay taxes. They're still kind to their neighbors a lot of times. But because those works are coming from a fallen and sinful heart, they're tainted. They can't be received by God. All this is why Jesus said people can't come to him unless the Father allows it. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Because they're depraved. They're lost. They're cut off from God. When people do not come to him and they reject him, the very sin that led them to reject him is the same sin they will continue in and it will continue to cause conflict and division in the world. And the result will be war. As sin multiplies in individuals, as the depravity multiplies in individuals, it just spills over and there's more war until Jesus comes back. James explains this to us in James 4, verses 1-3. through He says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive. Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Why do people fight? Because the passions in them cause them to covet and desire that which does not belong to them. So I'm going to go fight you and I will take it. Or if you take something from me, well now my passions are are aroused and I'm going to fight you and I'm going to take it back. You say, well isn't this passage in James, that's more about like individuals, right? Listen, wars don't come about in a vacuum where a whole nation just decides, you know what, we're bored, let's get in a fight. Wars start because individuals have disagreements and that spills over into communities and that spills over into cities and that spills over into states and that spills over into nations. You see how this works, right? But it begins with individuals. Joel Beakey says it this way. He says, the world is made up of nations, which are made up of communities, which are made up of families, which are made up of individuals. So at the end of the day, what we're seeing in the world, all the war we're seeing, all the conflict we're seeing, it still comes down to Satan um, taking people, leading them astray, and then people in their sin being deceived and lashing out against one another in violence and bloodshed resulting in death. Look at World War I, for example. Why did it begin? 
We can say a number of things, right? If you read a history book, you might say nationalism, competing ambitions, desires for more territory in Europe, global uh, economic alliances that need to be maintained, smaller nations that want independence. There was an arms race for deadly weaponry. There was this changing balance of power in Europe. You can say all that, but at the end of the day, a group of Bosnian zealots assassinated the Archduke of Austria-Hungary in an attempt to destabilize the empire, And it kicked off a world war. At the end of the day, it's exactly what James said in James 4. The black hand, which is where those zealots came from, was the name of their group, wanted more power, so they fought and their fighting sent the world into war. So we're seeing that war is a result of depravity. And the terribleness of it should cause people to wake up to their own depravity and to beg Jesus for mercy and salvation. But the sixth trumpet shows us the reality of depravity in the response to war, not just in the war itself. The war itself shows us depravity, but even more we see it in the fact that when the alarm is sounding, people are going, yeah, I'm not listening to that. I'm just going to keep on in my sin. I don't care. I'm going to keep bowing down to my idols. They're unrepentant. The language in verses 20 and 21 is very similar to Daniel 5.23, which says, But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose, all, and whose are all your ways you have not honored. This is how the Bible often speaks of idols. Idols that are made of bronze and iron and wood and stone. It it calls them dumb. It mocks them. It challenges them to a fight because the Lord knows these idols can't respond, right? He's the living God and He's trying to get us in the Scriptures to see these are dead things that we're worshiping. So like in Psalm 115, it says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. The idols are dumb, and if you keep trusting in them, it will result in you being spiritually dumb, right? And do you, you understand how I, I, I use that word dumb? That you, you, you don't talk to God, you don't hear from God, you don't feel God. You, you are dumb to God in the sense that there is no relationship with Him because you have chosen an idol over Him and it is making you more and more spiritually cut off the more and more you're giving yourself to it. And Jeremiah 10 says, Thus says the Lord, Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. These things that that people bow down to, they're lifeless, and they offer absolutely no hope to the human heart. No solution to the depravity. We saw the blowing of the fifth trumpet and we saw these demons tormenting unbelievers, making them miserable from the inside out, seeking to destroy their lives. And yet, people are content to continue bowing down to them. 
content to reject the warning in the rumors of war. They persist in their sin, hoping the calamity of something as terrible as war will never touch them. Not realizing something much more terrible is coming, and that is final judgment. If there is no hope in Jesus, then there is no hope at all. So from the war-wrought death in the world to the rejection of God and the continued idolatry, the sinfulness of human beings can't be denied in these verses. But there is hope because, teaching point number two tonight, the sixth trumpet shows us the rule of God. As much as it shows us the depravity of man, it also shows us how God is in charge. He's ruling. He is reigning. And this is a comfort to us when war is all around and it feels like the depravity of human beings is winning the day. The reality that God is still governing the world from His throne, that He, he is doing it with clarity, He's not confused, that He's doing it totally calm at all times, He is not panicky, and He, he, he knows what He intends to do. We see this in a few places in these verses. You see it in verses 14 and 15. God is doing the loosing. And it's all in his perfect time, right? It's all down to the hour. The four angels who are being released from the Euphrates are not the same four angels from chapter 7, verse 1. In chapter 7, the four angels are servants of God, and they are restraining judgment on God's behalf. But in chapter 9, the four angels are being restrained. They're bound. They want to go to and fro in the earth, stirring up conflict and war and bringing death. But they will not do it until God allows it. It's governed right down to the hour. Nothing's on accident. Everything that is happening in this world is either caused by Him or it is allowed by Him, and He is in total control. There's not a bad guy that exists that is going to escape God's rule and God's governance. So what we're seeing is that in the same way that the Lord is in control with the blowing of the fifth trumpet, and Satan has no authority unless God grants it to him, he's in control with the blowing of the sixth trumpet. Another sign that God is ruling and reigning is he's keeping covenant with his people. And to, to see this here, you kind of got to deep dive a little bit. Um, the four angels are bound up in the Euphrates River. Now, when I was reading this for the first time, I thought, well, what's the deal with that? There's got to be significance to the Euphrates. It's not like John was just like, yeah, just pick a river. You know what I mean? As he's seeing this vision. No, he knew that that's the Euphrates. I'm calling it the Euphrates. He knew what he was seeing. And this has caused some Bible commentators to get worked up about the physical site of Armageddon. And again, I don't think we need to do that yet, not until chapter 16. References to places in Revelation most of the time are not meant to cause us to look forward and speculate. That happens too much, where, where um, people will see a, a location or a geographical location in Revelation, and like, ooh, ooh, what's going on in that geographical location right now in my newspaper, right? And, and, and then they go, well, well, maybe this person's the Antichrist and this person's the Antichrist. We don't need to do that. Most of the time, when you see a location in Revelation, you're not supposed to be looking forward. You're supposed to be looking backwards. You're supposed to be going, what is the Old Testament significance of this place? So let's look in the Old Testament. Let's see what's up with the Euphrates. Genesis 15, 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. All right, land's going to stop at the Euphrates. Deuteronomy 1. Turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country and in the lowland and in the Negev and by the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. 
Joshua 1.4, from the wilderness and this Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. Clearly, from these three passages, the Euphrates served as a boundary. And what it was is not just a boundary of where the land ended, it was a boundary that showed this is where God's kingdom stops and this is where the world begins. On this side of the Euphrates, this is covenant. This is God's people. His promises are here for his people. On that side of the Euphrates are those who rebel against God and they live in the domain of darkness. They bow down to idols. They do terrible things like killing old people when they have no use left to the society and sacrificing children. And so the fact that the angels emerge from the river that is the boundary between God's people and the world communicates something important to us, which is this. God is keeping his covenant and he will not allow his people to be destroyed. They come from the Euphrates because they're going out into the world to destroy the world. They're not coming into the promised land to destroy the people of God who have been sealed. And this was an encouragement to the believers of Asia Minor in the first century because they've got the the threat of Rome and the state-sponsored persecution of the church breathing down their neck. They've got the threats coming from the synagogue and those in Judaism who hate them for saying that Jesus is Lord and and that God is triune and and for all the world that's in uh, war that is going on in the world, right? To know that all that's happening and yet to know the church will prevail, that we're going to be okay. That God is protecting us. That Jesus was not lying when He said to Peter, on this rock I will build My church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That is not to say that Christians will not die in wars. We will have more brothers and sisters in heaven who died in wars than we could ever possibly imagine, right? There's no way to estimate it. One famous example would be Pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German Lutheran pastor who was a part of a plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler during World War II. Two years after being arrested, Bonhoeffer was executed by the Gestapo for his crimes. Sadly, the war ended just six months after they killed him, and he was faithful to Jesus all the way to the end. So Bonhoeffer died. Did God not keep covenant with Pastor Dietrich? Did God mess up? Did one of the angels... Slip, slip through the offensive line, get into the A-gap, and, and, and you know, uh, run in and, 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 and sneak Dietrich off. He, he's the one, right? He, he, he died. The war touched him. Listen, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was killed in April of 1945, but his soul lives on in the eternal life that Jesus Christ gave him. And the church marches on, and a million Bonhoeffers have come and gone, and God and His governing will see to it that the church continues to march on until His Son returns. So I'm not saying that Christians aren't touched by war. I'm not saying Christians aren't killed in war. What I'm saying to you is that war in the world, conflict in the world, will not destroy God's church. It will not. The church will stand and the church will witness until Jesus comes back. That does not mean that you can be lazy and say, well, we don't really need to tend to the church. We don't really need to tend to the mission. I mean, God's not going to let the church fail. Well, no, that's disobedience. He's not going to let the church fail. He didn't say he's not going to let our church fail, right? 
Our church could disappear and the church would carry on. So, no, no, we, we have to tend to the work. But we also need to wring our hands and, and fret over every election and every war and every new law and how is this going to impact the church and are we going to fall apart and what's going to happen? Listen, stay informed for the sake of prayer and understanding, but you don't need to be fearful about what's going to happen to the church. The wars and the rumors of wars will not reach into Canaan and burn the church to the ground. God's not going to let it happen. He rules and He reigns and He sustains His people from the heavens. He limits Satan's power until the time when He returns and He will crush Satan under His peaceful feet for good. So we see the depravity of humanity. We see the rule of God as He limits Satan's power. He keeps covenant with us. And then finally, the sixth trumpet shows us the urgency of repentance. The depravity of humanity, the rule of God, and the urgency of repentance. The wars of this world are a warning to the unbelieving in this world. It's a warning, right? It's a wake-up call. Consider what it would be like to come up against God Almighty in battle. Consider what it would be like to suffer eternal defeat as you challenge God's authority and position as the creator and ruler of this world. And this warning from the sixth trumpet is a merciful warning. We know it's a merciful warning because of where it comes from. The voice instructing the sixth angel comes from the golden altar that is before God. I mentioned it's the same altar from chapter 8, verse 3. It's an altar that is meant to remind us of the altar of atonement and intercession in the Old Testament, which stood just outside of the most holy place. The place where the priests would go for cleansing and the removal of defilement before they went in for the rites. And it is from that heavenly altar that God is mercifully unleashing war on the earth. And you might hear me say that and go, how could you say it's merciful? Because it's a warning. And if the tumultuous and terrible consequences of war cause you to tremble at the prospect of how evil is, then I would say urgently repent at the merciful warning of God. If thinking about all the fighting that has happened and is happening in the world causes you to despair over how things are, repent of your sin and find safety and joy in Jesus. Because as terrible as the wars of this world are, there is no war worse than the one that we have chosen to wage against God in our hearts. And the only way to be saved from our treasonous war crimes is to repent and to trust in Christ because He stepped down into this war-ravaged world and He gave His life as a ransom for many. He died in your place and He resurrected to show His victory over sin and death and now He offers to you the peace of that victory if you will surrender to Him. Repent, put your trust in Him, surrender to Him as Lord. And you must repent because World War II and Vietnam and the Civil War and the French Revolution and all the wars of the world combined cannot compare to the sorrow that will come to the defeat of the enemies of God in the final war. Repent before it is too late. And one last bit of application. As much as the wars of this world should cause an unbeliever to repent, they ought to cause believers to proclaim. We should see the blood and the bullets on our televisions and we should say, I've got to tell my neighbor about Jesus. Because this is the sixth trumpet. I'm seeing it on my TV. The alarm is sounding. I've got to go tell him about Jesus. Sin is too terrible for me to stay silent. I've got to invite him to church. Isn't this how we saw Jesus respond to the events of his day? 
Luke 13, there was some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices, and he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Shalom fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. When people ran to our Lord and said, Jesus, why is this happening? Why would God allow this to happen? Why would He allow Pilate to do this to these poor Galileans? Jesus' response is not to explain to them the reconciliation of God's control and suffering in the world. No, it's not that. He says, repent before it happens to you. That's His response. And then he says, and by the way, while we're talking about it, remember when that tower fell on those 18 people? Repent before it happens to you. War in the Ukraine? Our response should be, man, this world's fallen. I better tell somebody about Jesus and I better examine myself to make sure I'm in the faith. And when it comes to telling people about him, don't get in your head too much about it. You love your Lord and you love your church. Talk matter-of-factly out of your heart about your Jesus in your church. Don't give them a sales pitch. It's not going to work. Give them a testimony. Give them a witness that Jesus is resurrected. That the church that he has created in his grace is awesome. And invite people into the covenant. Invite people into the community. Because the message of the kingdom that Christ has given you is the only hope that this war-torn world has. I know that you are all ready for the world to end. Right? As Christians, we say that confidently. It's one of the weird things about us. We love life and the abundant life God has given us, but we're also at all times like, Maranatha, come back and end it. Right? It's this tension that we live in as believers. Six trumpets. You know the end of the world will come at the end of this cycle with the blowing of the seventh trumpet, but I do have bad news for you. It's actually not going to come for a little bit because we've got to go through a whole chapter of interlude before we get to that seventh trumpet. So, an interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpets. We'll get into that next week. Revelation 10, 1-11. That's your homework to read. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we pray for peace in our world. For only in you can we live and move in safety. We know that. So while we understand the realities tonight from your word, God, as Christians, we pray for peace. We do pray for peace, God. We long to see the conflicts of this world end. And the peace that we really pray for is not just temporary peace, but the ultimate shalom that you will bring when you return. And so in our prayers for peace, God, we don't stop short. We don't just pray for peace tomorrow. We pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. But until then, Lord, with every sound of gunfire and with every sound of bombs bursting, with uh, every sound of, of a baby crying, Lord, or car bomb going off, or all the, all the things that we see in our TVs and some brothers and sisters in this room have not just seen on TV, they've seen it in person. God, with all of that, we lament what sin has done, but we also recognize that the alarm bell is ringing and the sixth trumpet is blowing God, we call on people to repent, and I pray that we would proclaim more and more, and I pray that you would put people in the orbit of this church, God, that you would bring people into our lives, 
through upward basketball, through Easter egg hunts, through trips to the grocery store, through our, our workplaces, uh, Father, through our families, through our neighborhoods. Uh, God, through all of these things, bring people into our lives and help us, Lord, to express to them the urgency of repentance in light of the depravity of man and to hold out to them the hope of Christ. And Father, I pray for people to repent. I pray for people to repent. And so right now, God, we ask that um, your will would be done on the earth as it is in heaven, that your name would be made holy, and that people would respond to the sixth trumpet in repentance. Help us, God, to be a part of that and to share our faith and to uh, have the joy of the harvest, Lord, as people come to know you. We love you, Lord. We thank you that uh, you seal us with the blood of your Son. We thank you for the promise of the the covenant. Um, We thank you that we have eternal life. We thank you that we can bear to watch the news and we can bear to live in this world in the midst of all of the, the bloodshed and the violence and the things that happen. We can bear it, God, because we know there's a better world to come, and we know you. We love you, Lord. Help us to witness for you in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.